Hey friends, welcome to Conversations with Kenzie, a podcast hosted by yours truly, Kenzie Brenna. No topic goes unturned here. We talk about everything with everyone. We like to get raw and sometimes we get heavy and sometimes we swear. So I'm warning you now. Also, we are working remotely. So audio quality between host and guest may differ. Lastly, check out our show notes for giveaways, fun promotions, or discounts to our favorite stuff. Enjoy the show. Okay. Hi, Serafina. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm so excited that you're here today. I asked our mutual friend, Sam, who would be a really great science communicator on the podcast, who's really enthusiastic, who knows their shit, who can come on and just like riff with me for an hour. (laughs) And you were one of the top names that she said. And then when I checked you out online, (laughs) totally. (laughs) When I checked you out online, I was like, oh my gosh, you have such good, you have such a great energy and you're really passionate for storytelling. And I immediately knew that we aligned because you were like talking about men in science or something (laughs) on Twitter. Yes. and (laughs) That is a a constant thing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. One of the many threads. And I thought, okay, I'm going to reach out to her and who knows, like maybe she'll get back to me, but I figured that you'd be super busy. And here we are. And I'm so excited. I am so excited. I have Sam introduced me to your page and I was like, oh my God, she's amazing. So I'm really excited to talk to you and yeah, riff together. It'll be, it'll be a lot of fun. So tell us a little bit about your background because you know a lot of stuff about space and I don't know as much as you, but I know that I love space. And so I think that we both love space. So tell me why you know, how you know so much about space and how did that become something that you're really passionate about? So I fell in love with astronomy slash the night sky when I was honestly like four years old. I used to stargaze with my dad like every night and we'd have this heavy pair of binoculars and he'd walk me through the constellations. And I really, it it felt like that was what I was meant to do even at that age. Um, and so, you know, I, I, continued with my love for it through most of my sort of elementary middle school years. And when I was in middle school, I learned that there was an astronomy class for high schoolers. And I remember asking our dean, I was like, can I take this class? And I think I was like 12. And she was like, it's for seniors in high school. <laughs> like, no, you cannot take this. But I knew I was like, I'm going to bid my time. I'm going to wait it out. And I you know, ended up taking it my junior year of high school. I absolutely loved it. And my professor and I worked together my senior year to, um, instead of taking like a traditional science class, I worked specifically with him on astronomy. And that was when I really got into learning about dark energy and learning about supernova, which are two things that I focus on in grad school. And he introduced me to my advisor in undergrad who I did research with my entire undergraduate career. And um, then I went to grad school and that's where I am now. Mm. So what do you think that it was about, you know, staring at the night sky with your father? What kind of questions would run through your head that started to make you feel a little bit more fascinated with that massive area instead of, you know, something here on earth? Yeah, I think, you know, the perspective that I get from the night sky is so utterly calming that as someone who has, you know, I have pretty terrible anxiety and the night sky for me is sort of a lease, a release from all of that. And so being able to put myself and my problems in perspective and saying, you know, whatever happens on earth, whatever happens today or in the next hour really doesn't matter, not only in the scale of things, but in the cosmic scale of things. Um, To me, that was really calming and I think continues to be the driving force behind why I do it. Um, When I was with my dad as a little kid, I remember thinking, where did we come from? What's out there? 
what is the fate of the universe? Things like that, that are really big, profound philosophical questions to some extent. And astronomy is a tool, it's a science tool to be able to investigate those questions. And so for me, it was a really amazing way to merge those two sort of philosophy ideals and science and and make a sort of objective study of some of the most important things that I think humankind can think about. Oh my gosh. Yes, absolutely. I feel so connected with you about the fact that you can look up at the night sky and it can be so overwhelming and it can confound you. And then at the same time, it just centers you in the most odd way. You know, I definitely, especially when I'm flying um, and I have like travel anxiety, I feel like, you know, when I'm in an airplane and I look, if, if I'm able to, and I can, you know, see the sky if I'm, especially if I'm traveling at night and I like see the stars, I'm like, oh my God, like I'm so tiny in this giant thing. And I don't even know what this thing is. Yeah. And and exactly. Yeah. Sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, but I was just going to say, I think a lot of people can look at the night sky and feel overwhelmed. They can feel you know, we're so small and this is such an overwhelming vastness. But to me, and I'm not sure exactly why this is, but to me, I feel the exact opposite of it's so vast. And that is such a a calming thing for me because um, suddenly all of the obstacles that we face, all of the trials and tribulations that we endure, and really those are part of what make us human. They are just a blip in the universe. And I think that that is so profound and such a uh, an important takeaway in terms of putting sort of our ego in perspective. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And things can feel like, like you said, like so overwhelming when you're here. And when you're he- like, when I mean, when you're like down here on earth, things can feel so big. They can feel like they are so enormous and like they're swallowing you up and you can't escape them. Yeah. And then when you take yourself out of that situation and you start looking at yourself from the cosmic perspective and you start like expanding your perspective in that way, you start like, you know, like you were saying, like you really start realizing like, oh my God, I'm so, this is tiny. This is so small. And on the scale of like how old the universe is, it's like, this isn't even happening in this time. No, exactly. I think, so I focus on transients, which are things that change with time. And in the universe, you know, something that changes with time can be billions of years, right? But, you know, for us, what changes in time is things change every second, they change every millisecond. And so um, being able to put that in context and saying our transientness has really no meaning in this to the scale of the universe. um, I think can be really, really powerful if you do get overwhelmed with sort of life in general. I mean, I certainly get overwhelmed all the time by all sorts of things, you know, my Mm. thesis, my, you know, just anything. And being able to say, you know, none of this really, really matters in the scale of things, not to downplay your value, but to say that there's so much out there that um, can make it really worth something, I, I, I think is really special. Yeah, I totally agree. So let's talk a little bit about out there. And first off, we're going to talk about sort of the origin of the universe. So how did our universe arise? And what happened at the moment that it arose? So great question. Um, Difficult question. And I think one of the things when we talk about things like the origin of the universe and the fate of the universe is really understanding that our understanding of these things is based in in theory. We have observational evidence to help dissect and establish those theories, but it's a, it, they're really challenging, profound questions that um, you know, ten seconds of of answering them, or even ten years of answering them, is not enough. Mm-hmm. So, all of that being said. Um, we talk about the origin of the universe from the Big Bang. So we say that there was sort of this abrupt appearance of expanding space-time. And space-time is the fabric of the universe. So the universe didn't start in one particular space, in one particular 
moment, it, it, it expanded everywhere all at once. And that was immediately followed by an exponential expansion period called inflation. So the universe was really, really hot and really, really dense for a long time. And then as that sort of expansion slowed with time, matter started to form and we started to get clusters of, of stars. We started to get clusters of galaxies. And then fast forward in time, we get Earth um, at, at some point and then we get life. So there's a lot of uh, basically things that happen in a really, really short period of time. When you think about right after the universe, you're thinking about millions of seconds that things change on such a, a, a short time scale. And then you start to get things that we sort of understand as scientists and as human beings. So you start to get atoms, you start to get protons and neutrons and positrons. Um, and those things due to gravitational collapse start to form stars. Right. Okay. So the universe at once was created, like happened in like this big bang. So time space started and all of these small things were beginning to be created. And these small things started to add up to these larger things like stars and light and, and all of that. Yeah. And so light is an, an interesting point. So we call in science speak, we call light photons and photons were emitted from the moment of the Big Bang. And we can actually detect those photons today. And they are basically the oldest relics of things in our universe. And so by studying those photons that have traveled for the age of the universe, which we think is about 13.8 billion years, we can age the universe and we can understand how matter started to develop based on what those photons are telling us. How old are you? 27. <laughs> okay, I'm 30. And the universe is how old? 13.8 billion years. <laughs> when I say we're insignificant, like we are literally, it's like we're so small compared to the universe. It's amazing. There's that really good, um, it, to put it into perspective, there's like I saw I saw a picture of it online and it's like um like a tw it's a 12 month calendar and you have mm -hmm. each month and each month is like some development stage of the universe and then where we are like in waking life for the last like you know 200,000 years it's like a dot at the yeah. end for a second like it's yeah. like life has not even happened and existed exactly. in in, compar in comparison to the universe yeah. That calendar, so, I think it starts on January 1st and we're at like December 31st, like 11 p.m. or something. And life started at like 10 p.m. on December 31st. You know, it's been like no right. time. Yeah, yeah. And just because I know that people are going to be thinking about this while we're talking, people are, someone's going to wonder, and if you can give a succinct um, how the way that we're going about this, that would be great. But if you can't, no worries at all. But someone's going to ask, like, how are we actually measuring uh, protons or sorry, photons that are 13.8 billion years old? That is a great question. I will try <laughs> to be succinct. Um, basically, we launch these spacecrafts. And one of them, if you want to look it up, if you're a listener and you want to look it up, one of them is Planck and one of them is WMAP. And so these spacecrafts literally map the different parts of our universe. And from mapping those different parts, we can build a mathematical picture that we can ex then extract the age of the universe from. We can extract the density of the universe, things like that. So Planck measures the expansion rate of the universe. And by using the expansion rate, we can actually look back in time to sort of map when the universe began. So we extrapolate backwards in time. Okay. Yeah, go Which, ahead. So that also makes sense of why the Big Bang Theory makes sense right now. The, the most sense as to like why that happened. It's kind of like we're rewinding, we're rewinding everything that's happening and if we rewind you know to that scale it seems like everything's coming closer and closer and closer together exactly into a one point at, at at a specific point so that leads me into my next question so the universe is expanding mm -hmm. i'm curious how do we know that how do we know that it hasn't just stopped let's say and 
do we know, and this is going to be the fun and the hard question, do we know what it's expanding into? Right. So the universe, we learned that the universe is expanding in the 1930s when this guy Hubble was basically measuring galaxies and he found that they are outside of our of our galaxy and that most farthest away galaxies are actually moving away with time. So we learned that in the 30s. What we didn't realize is that that expansion is speeding up with time which means that the furthest away galaxies are actually moving farther and farther away from us at a faster and faster rate. And the thing that is sort of propelling that accelerated expansion is what we call dark energy. So we have a, different, a, a couple of different tools to measure that accelerated expansion. We use supernova, we use the missions that I just mentioned, Planck and WMAP, um, we look at globular clusters. So we have a variety of tools to try to understand how fast the universe is expanding at this moment in time and how that changes with distance. Now, to get to your second part of the question, what is the universe expanding into? Unfortunately, not only in this, is this question difficult, it's almost impossible to even put, make sense of. So the universe is, is everything that we know of. And so that means that it's not expanding into anything. So if you picture, I, I'm a very visual person, so I like to picture things. If you picture a balloon and you're an ant on a balloon, no matter where you walk on the balloon, there are no edges. You're just continuing to walk around the balloon. And so, yes, that balloon is expanding, but you have no sort of sense of the dimension that it is expanding into. Mm -hmm. And for all intents and purposes, that dimension doesn't matter. What matters is how fast the balloon is expanding, how many ants are with you on the balloon, what is the balloon made of, those sorts of questions. But every dimension that we can talk about in any meaningful way should be sort of well-constrained in that, in that balloon problem. So TLDR, the question doesn't make sense. The universe is everything and we're not expanding into anything. Right, for sure. And I know that's going to be really confusing yeah. for a lot of us because we're so used to in, out, start, finish, all of those things. And yeah. I think when you get into these types of questions, well, like, you know, before when I asked you, what happened before the Big Bang or like what's going, what happened? Like, yeah, what happened before the Big Bang or like what was here before the Big Bang or what are we expanding into? It's like, yeah, we don't really go, not, it's not that we can't go there. It's just that it doesn't make sense, I guess, to the physics that we know right now. And yeah. it's like, you can't necessarily like, I guess people can conceptualize it. Like, sure, it's expanding into something else, but like, it doesn't really make sense. Yeah. Um. And I think that one of the biggest things when it comes to these problems, and I'm curious what you think of this, is that we have such a fast response to just make up an answer if we don't know it. Like the universe must be expanding into another universe or it must be expanding into something that's beside another universe or whatever yeah. it is. And that's all fine if like, you know, we all just like want to like have like fun conversations about like, sure, cool. Yeah. Yeah. There, there are some, I think that it's just human nature to just want answers. And so we can kind of just make up those answers because not knowing doesn't make sense to us. And right. because we got to know because uncertainty kills us because yeah. we just can't remain uncertain. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. Um, and it's one of the things that I really like about science in general, the science leads you to an answer. Of course, there are scientific biases, right? We're not without any sort of subjectivity in our work. But I think when you really step away from, let's say, the math of how fast the universe is expanding, and you really just start to think about it, you have to sit with some discomfort, because this is not intuitive. The mm -hmm. fact that there's something propelling our universe to expand at an accelerated rate, like, what does that you know, how do you conceptualize of that in any meaningful way and draw conclusions from that is really, really difficult. And mm -hmm. 
it is totally natural to be like, well, if it's expanding, then it has to expand into something. But I think I challenge sort of the scientists and everyone to take a step back and say, well, maybe my sort of human conception of expansion isn't the only way to think about expansion. Maybe mm. my the my interpretation of the world in which we live and the universe that we reside in isn't the only way. And that's uncomfortable, but I think that's where a lot of sort of developments happen. And that is where a lot of the science is done is sort of in this place of discomfort. Any sort of growth, I think, comes from discomfort. Oh, yeah. We're huge, <laughs> fan, huge fans of discomfort here in this community. So you're speaking our language. So if the universe, just because we're on the expansion conversation part of it, the universe is expanding. Does that mean that stuff that's inside the universe or whatever, inside, outside, all of it, does that mean that it's all expanding with it? So everything's kind of going to eventually be stretched out? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so we there are two competing forces when we talk about sort of things on the scale of the universe. We talk about dark energy, which is the stuff that is propelling the accelerated expansion of the universe. And then, so you can picture that as um, sort of anti-gravity. It's it's the opposite of gravity. So the 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 contradicting force is gravity. So gravity pulls things together. So when you talk about things on a universal scale, it's important to recognize that gravity works on smaller scales. So in other words, gravity is what holds our planet together. Dark energy is not going to rip our planet apart because the distances that we're talking about are so small. But when you start to talk about intergalactic distances, or if you even start to talk about um, clusters of galaxies and the distances between those, that's when when dark energy really comes into play. And so dark energy works on the fabric of the universe. So if you picture the universe as a trampoline, dark energy is sort of whatever makes up the, the trampoline. And that is the fabric that is pulling things apart mm -hmm. we can still have bowling balls resting on the trampoline that just kind of hang out and those things can be galaxies or they can be planets and nothing is going to happen to them but they are still pulled alongside dark energy they are pulled alongside the trampoline as it expands does that make sense yeah, yeah. So yeah, the way that again, because I'm super visual too, the way that I'm like imagining it in my head is like, and I could totally butcher this. So like, <laughs> big, big no, time forgive good. me. <laughs> but yeah, something similar to a trampoline, like a blanket and things rest on the blanket and the blanket is at some speed being pulled apart. And so on the small scales, like us on the planet, we will never be pulled apart by dark energy, but on the bigger scales, so on the scale of a galaxy or a couple of galaxies or the cluster of galaxies, those you can see being pulled apart. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so because that expansion rate is accelerating with time, we think, and this is getting to sort of the fate of the universe, we think that the universe is going to continue to accelerate faster and faster and faster to the point where the distances between stars become so big that the universe is dark. So right now we go outside in the nights and look up at the night sky and we see, you know, depending on, on the weather, we see really, really tons of stars. But fast forward to trillions of years that may not be the case. If we're still around, we may not see any stars other than our sun and our sun won't even be around at that point. So we think that the future, sort of the fate of the universe is sort of this cold expansion. It's cold, it's dark, and it's lonely. Okay, so we're <laughs> living in the Goldilocks era right now. Uh, pretty much. <laughs> That's that pretty much right. It is so sad. So everyone say your goodbyes. <laughs> <laughs> we have we have about five billion years left for our sun. So we have some time. We have some yeah. <laughs> we're okay here. We're okay for now. For um wow. So okay, so the universe gets cold and gets dark eventually you know, to this theory. Yeah. I can imagine that 
oh man, that like, that just continues to happen because there yeah. would be no- nothing else to pull in those stars to make, to, to then gather things together, together again, to like make galaxies or to make planets or whatnot. Yeah. And, and this is an interesting point in terms of, well, maybe can that change later on? So one of the things that we have learned when we're studying the universe is that the universe behaves differently at different times. So at the beginning, the matter dominated everything and the universe was pretty small. And then as photons started to uh, escape matter and escape into the universe and the universe expanded, uh, matter no longer dominated. And now we're sort of in the middle And there's this tug of war between matter and dark energy where, Mm -hmm. you know, matter works on small scales, gravity works on small scales, dark energy works on large scales. We think that in the future, dark energy will, will sort of be the dominant force, but who knows, you know, maybe we don't know of, of sort of how matter will work on those scales. Um, And that's where a lot of study with sort of what I do and, and what other people do in cosmology Um, which is studying the origin and the fate of the universe. Um, And the matter of the universe is is really devoted to to trying to understand those questions. Gotcha. Okay. Thank you so much for that. So I... I also know that somebody listening is going to think like, well, I'm sure that the universe will just like spit out a black hole and then things will just start to be pulled into it. (laughs) I just know. So I mean, <laughs> who knows? But I'm curious, what is a black hole? And let's chat a little bit about them for a second. Yeah. So a black hole is a, a dead star. It's formed from dead stars, unless we're talking about black holes at the very beginning of the universe, which are, are sort of different from this conversation. But for the purposes of this conversation... If you have a really massive star and it dies, it can either form a neutron star or a black hole. A neutron star is sort of the leftover core of the dead star. And um, it's pretty dense, it's pretty small compared to the original massive star. A black hole is basically when the core of the original star collapses in on itself. And it's sort of, in the, the center of a black hole is a place of infinite density. Um, it's called a singularity. So you have, when we talk about black holes, we talk about the event horizon, which is the point beyond which light no longer returns. You know, you shine a flashlight at a black hole at some radius away from the center of the black hole, the light will disappear. And then you talk about sort of the singularity of the black hole, which is the point of infinite density. So if we go back to our trampoline analogy and you have this like massive bowling ball in the center of the trampoline, you see that the fabric of the trampoline gets warped and it forms this like inverted triangle. Um, That is the shape of a black hole. So if you imagine you have a small bowling ball, you're going to have not too much of a, a divot in the trampoline. But if you have a really big one, that's where black holes are, are basically formed and warp the fabric of space-time. Cool. Okay. <laughs> and, I, and I'm sure that you've heard like this joke before, but like as you're describing what a black hole is, I'm like, oh my God, that feels like my heart sometimes. Like infinite density collapsed in on itself. I love like, it. <laughs> I love it. It never gets old for me. So I, and I wrote here in our question, and I know that it's so obvious, but I'm just curious if you can touch on it. But I wrote in, why can't we go through them? I know that I know the answer to that. I know you do, do too. But for those of you who are listening who don't know, I'm yeah, I want a little bit of an explanation for that. Yeah. And and just to be none of this is obvious. Like some of these questions, you know, I I can think about them and I don't even know the answers. So, you know, yeah. no worries if, if people don't don't know, but you know, when we talk about going through black holes, um, again, the question doesn't entirely make sense because when you fall into a black hole, if you fall in, hopefully you never do, there are these forces called tidal forces, um, which is basically all of the gravity because, so let's back up, because black holes are so massive, there's a ton of gravity. And that gravity can literally 
reduce your body into strands of atoms that literally we call it spaghettifying your body where you are just totally ripped apart because the gravity that holds together your body is so insignificant compared to the gravity of the black hole. So bad juju if you get anywhere <laughs> near a black hole. <laughs> so interstellar can't happen yet. Yeah, no. <laughs> and there is some interesting physics in interstellar. They had astronomers, astrophysicists on, I think, like the committee of writers. Um, and they did some stuff really well. So like the shape of the black hole was really good. If you Google the black hole image that came out um, a year or two years ago, a year ago, um, it's pretty good. I mean, mm -hmm. they did some really amazing stuff, but then some of it is just like, nah, <laughs> that would it's never a happen. Movie. It's yeah. a movie. <laughs> exactly. It's Hollywood. For sure. For sure. Um, yeah. And thanks for saying that too, about how some things aren't actually obvious because I know that some of these questions can feel like such basic questions, but I mean, I revisit these questions over and over again and I never fail to be amazed at like, oh my gosh, the cool place that we live in, like the, totally. the universe that we live in where stars are formed and then they collapse in on themselves and then they create these holes where nothing escapes. Like I think that I, it doesn't matter how many times that gets explained to me. I'm oh, like, yeah. wow, cool. Yeah. No, for sure. My, <laughs> my favorite class to teach is introduction to astronomy because of that, you know, you get to sort of learn about all of these really fascinating counterintuitive, crazy parts about our universe without having to get too far into the math. And so there is this like nascent understanding and appreciation that you can have from that. So yeah, I love it. Absolutely. So how are stars born in general? Um, you know, you mentioned that uh, photons were born the moment that the Big Bang happened. Mm -hmm. So and then how eventually how did stars form from them? So there are large sort of gas clouds that you know, when we talk about stellar formation, we talk about stellar nurseries where large glass, gas clouds collapse under the force of gravity. And that forms sort of the hot, dense cores that become stars that we talk about. You know, it forms a protostar. And as that protostar starts to spin up with time, it forms a star. And what's interesting is Often, the cloud that forms protostars and stars actually breaks up into multiple fragments where there are multiple stars that are formed. So most stars that are made in our, in our universe are actually formed in, in binary systems. They're formed alongside other stars. And then sort of the bits that are left over form planets. So that's how solar systems are formed is basically gravity collapses everything, spins everything up, and then spits it all back out. And um, they develop for, you know, billions of years. And we often, when we study planets and we study stars and we look for planets that can harbor life, we're looking at binary systems or triple systems of stars. They're often not just single stars. Sometimes stars will migrate away from each other with time, but often, you know, they'll stay together. So is it safe to say that at some point there were two stars here close to us with our sun? And that's an active, I think, area of research. I don't know the answer, but I think that probability certainly indicates that that was the case. Okay. Okay. Very cool. So stars are cool. You like them. <laughs> stars are great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and sometimes they have siblings. That's very interesting. I didn't know that. So. I am now curious about this term called the multiverse. I don't actually know much about it. I mean, I can guess exactly like what it means from the name of it, but what is the multiverse? And I'm curious about your thoughts on it. So it is a, a, an interesting thought. Um, it's all purely theoretical, but I think the point of the multiverse is to say that there's this hypothetical group of multiple universes and together, they make up everything that exists. So there are various possibilities of what the multiverse is. There can be parallel universes where 
you know, you have multiple dimensions more than our space-time 4D universe that we live in. And parallel universes make up the multiverse. You can have sort of bubble universes. So this is an interesting one where, like, each universe is a bubble. And if they touch, then maybe you have deja vu, which is interesting. Oh, wow. Um, Really? Yeah, I don't know if there's any mathematical justification <laughs> for that, but it is, it's a theory. Um, huh. And then the one that's really, I think, resonates with me is, frankly, just uh, this sort of mathematical explanation. So the way that our universe is like com- basically made up of things and what we think it'll begin and end as is based on the density of the universe and the rate of the expansion of the universe. So the density of the universe is basically how much matter and how much energy there is. And those are very, very precise numbers. You know, we think that dark energy is about 68% of our universe. And we think that dark matter is a fraction of our universe. And then we think normal matter is just 5% of our universe. Those are really specific things. Well, what if those numbers aren't actually the case in a different universe? You know, maybe we Mm -hmm. have... 30% of the universe is normal matter. How would that change the shape of the universe? How would that change the age, how long it lasts, and what happens to it? And so there's no real reason why our universe should be like this. It just is. And so to be able to conceptualize of, of different types of universes that are sort of founded upon different answers to those questions gives you a really interesting picture about the possibility of of what the universe could look like. So I like that because, you know, one thing we talk about in science is there's no reason why something should be the way it is, just is. Mm. And again, sitting with that discomfort and saying, well, maybe, you know, what if it isn't like that? What could that mean? Um, It's really compelling, I think. Hmm. Yes, of course. And again, when we were talking at the beginning of this about like needing answers and wanting, you know, one good hard reason as to like, why is the universe the way that it is right now? Or why is our world the way that it is right now? We love having those answers instead of saying like, oh, no, it literally could be just because. Yeah. Um, I know that that can sit really uncomfortable with people. But what you're saying is that no, sometimes things are just the way that they are without without a reason or without someone or something dictating that it should yeah. be the way that it is. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, understanding, for example, you know, we talk about, I've talked about space time several times during this conversation. And we say it's the fabric of the universe. Well, what does that mean? Is it, you know, one theory is there's this space time foam where if we, if we talk about, things on a quantum mechanics level, which is the smallest things that we can talk about, things kind of pop in and out of existence, and that gives it a foamy structure. But, Mm. you know, what if things lasted half a second longer? How would that change the structure of the universe? You know, we can, we can make physics uh, sort of models, and we can come up with theories, and we can come up with um, sort of objective evidence to exp- make a picture of why something exists, but that doesn't mean that's the only picture out there. Mm, okay. I love that. So in in physics, it's like you can still get imaginative. It's just that the imagination is kind of based off of mathematical models that have already existed, but you're rearranging the models to like make a new house to see what that house would look like. Yeah, that's right. And I think you're also, you're drawing from your observations, right? So you're drawing from the evidence that you gather. And, you know, in 2020, the evidence that we gather can be really, really far more precise at the 1% level than it was 50 years ago when we're when we started talking about, for example, the expansion of the universe. So yes, we are, we, we do both. We look at the mathematical models, we try to rearrange them. And then we also try to inject all of our observations into them to then see if the models change based on what we observe. Oh, so cool. (laughs) It's very, very, very cool. 
Let's go to your area of research. Do you want to start off by telling us what a supernova is? Sure. Yeah. So supernova are exploding stars. And there are two main types of supernova. Um, The first is when there's a binary star system. And there may be sort of matter that is being pulled off of one star and kind of stuck onto the other star, forcing that star to explode. Or you could just have a really, really massive star that when it nears the end of its life, it collapses and then explodes. So I try to understand the physics of supernova. I try to understand which stars will explode, when they will explode. And then I also try to use supernova as tools to understand the rate of the expansion of the universe. So it's a probe to understand dark energy. So two things. One, you study exploding stars. That's so badass. I know. (laughs) (laughs) And two, just to get the terminology right. So when we are talking about a supernova, the plural to that is supernova. It's not the, it's not supernovas or whatnot. Yeah. So it's, it's supernova with an E at the end for plural. Um, It's still unclear how people say it. It's kind of like up to the, up to the person, but Uh, But yeah, yeah, supernova, supernova. So the stars explode and then you get to study them and observe them. And do you look at why they're, why they have, um, you know, blown up the way that they've blown up? Or are you looking at more or less like what happens afterwards? So that's actually a really good question. Whenever you look at something in space, you're looking at it as it was when the light was emitted from that object. So when I look at supernova that are 200 million light years like away from us, I am looking at them what uh, as what they looked like 200 million years ago. So in that sense, I'm looking back in time. And when I observe them, I either observe them, I, I try to observe them as close to the peak of the supernova as possible. So basically what happens is the star explodes, the light leaves the star, but then it rams into sort of this shell of material that was ejected along, like from the star. So the peak of that sort of light that we see is the supernova. And so I wanna get as close to that moment as possible to try to understand Things like the composition of the star, things like how fast that ejecta is moving away from the star, things like what's left from the star, what shape is the supernova. You can learn all of those things all from light, which I think is really, really profound and cool. You know, when you look at things in other science disciplines, it it feels like to me as an astronomer, there are more tools. So if you're studying dogs, for example, you can touch the dog, you can weigh the dog, you can take a temperature of the dog. We can't touch anything in space. So we have to use light. That is our only tool to try to understand the phenomenon of that object. So I'm, I'm curious both about the explosion, and I'm also curious about predicting that explosion. And so that's where a lot of modeling comes in, where I basically model a star from birth, so that protostar phase that we talked about, to sort of evolving and then exploding as a supernova. And so I can take my models, theoretically correspond them with observations, and say, I observe a star that has the same temperature, luminosity, and radius as my model. I bet it'll explode in 100,000 years. And then we wait a hundred thousand years. And then we wait. You're right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I can't really be wrong because no one's gonna be around to hold me accountable. <laughs> I love it. So then yeah, we we stop cryo freezing you. Uh, yeah. and then we, we wake you up to see. That's if what you I get my dissertation is is sure. hundred thousand years now. Were this. you right? Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Um so stars have a few fates. They can is this is that right that they can become black holes and then when they explode into a supernova is that um is that eventually going to lead to a black hole or are they just exploding and then like hanging out for a while and then turning yeah. dark 
Yeah, so the the stellar fate depends on the mass of a star. Not all stars explode as supernova, only massive ones do. So stars that are less than about eight solar masses, they fade and become white dwarfs. If a star is heavier than eight solar masses, which is eight times the mass of our sun, so you can kind of picture how big that is, wow. we start talking about, okay, the star explodes as a supernova, and then what's left, the core of the star, will either form a neutron star or a black hole. And okay. there's some, I mean, that's that's a rough sort of picture, but mm -hmm. if you get a 100 solar mass star, so again, 100 times the mass of our sun, it may explode immediately and not leave anything behind and form a black hole. Mm. Um, so there's definitely variations of really, really interesting objects that are formed from dead stars. And so when you study transient science, when you study things that change with time, that's sort of what you start to look at is, do you form a black hole? Do you form a neutron star? Do you form a magnetar, which is sort of this rapidly rotating magnetic neutron star? There are all sorts of variations that lead to really really cool physics. Oh, that's very interesting. So the stars can have different personalities and different fates based on their sizes. Yep. That's exactly I mean, right. That's like not too different than like human beings. Like no, it's not. <laughs> it's not. But um, Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I think to me, this is some of the most interesting research because, you know, when we look at a pinprick of light in the night sky, Again, it's 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 really almost beyond impossible to be like, how big is this thing? How hot is this thing? What is it going to do? Where did it come from? Is it alone? I mean, there's just like a million different questions. And so the study of transient astronomy is to really try to understand those things. And so to do that, we look at a bunch of different objects. So because we can't imagine, imagine looking at a picture of a human being. If you look at one picture, it's impossible to be able to say what they looked like when they were, you know, 15 years ago or what they looked like or what they're going to look like 15 years from now. You just have that one snapshot. But when you look at a bunch of different pictures, you can start to map the evolution of human species or if you, you know, start to map the evolution of child, teenager, adult, mm -hmm. elderly person. And that's how you can start to sort of build this catalog evolution of of stars so we look at vast amounts of data to try to understand how stars evolve and how would our our particular universe be different i know that you know we we might not have a reason why to the why these things happen but how would our universe be different if supernova didn't occur in our universe would it be that much different would we still be here today we, yeah, so supernova inject elements into the interstellar medium, which is basically the stuff around the star. And they make almost all of the elements in our universe. So because of nuclear fusion that goes on in the supernova or in the stellar core makes all heavy elements, elements heavier than hydrogen, um, we get some hydrogen and helium from the Big Bang, but anything else is basically from a supernova or a neutron star, which is, you know, the dead core of a supernova. And so we wouldn't be around. Galaxies would look super different. Um, we wouldn't, I, I guess, really the only elements we would have in our universe are hydrogen and helium. So it's, uh, there wouldn't be any life. It, yeah, it would be a totally foreign, totally foreign place. The universe needs supernova to, to establish life. Right, right. So the universe biology, it's made up of chemistry. There's like, you know, elements that go into all of this. And some of these elements can only be created in these dying stars, which is actually so freaking beautiful if you think about it. Like, yeah that there are big things out there that are dying that for some weird reason where there might not even be a reason it's been able to like give life to yeah. things around it. Um, which leads me into my next question. There is something that I've heard before and it's the iron in our blood is forged in the belly of dying stars. Is that true or is it not true? It's true. 
<laughs> yeah, it's true. So the heaviest element that stars can fuse in their core is iron. And so once a star reaches iron, it that's when it explodes. And so that iron is then ejected and creates us, you know, it, it creates our blood. And so I think on a universal scale, stars never really die because they their innards create other things, um, which is really beautiful. Oh, it's so beautiful. It's very similar to like, you know, like like what happens on a farm, you know, like a cow eating grass and then the cow passes the grass and then it feeds the grass more and then the yep. cow passes. And if it's buried in the pasture, it then feeds the grass. It's like as yep. corny and as silly as it sounds, but it's like that circle of life. It's like the yeah. snake eating itself kind of thing. And 100%. Oh, it's so it's really, really, really beautiful. And you don't have to be spiritual or religious. You can be entirely secular and have that really big connection to the outside world or or to outer space in that way, just knowing that the stuff that is inside of us was once out there. Yep, absolutely. I think that to me is one of the things that I love most about astronomy and what I do, 100%. Mm-hmm. So speaking also about like, life and it existing here. <laughs> Do you believe that life could exist in other places in the universe? Yes, I do. Um, there's too many planets out there. There's too many different variations of what, um, how close a, a planet can be to its star, what the composition is of the planet, you know, all sorts of things that kind of go into the probability for life that I think it is highly unlikely if life did not exist outside of, of Earth. There's that one quote, and it is it's it goes like, there are two ways that we can think about this question. And it's like, either we are alone in the universe, and that's very scary, or we're not alone in the universe, and that's still very scary. Yeah. <laughs> and I love both of, both of yeah. those things. No, but- for sure. I'm with I, you. I like 100% think that it would be really silly and very egotistical to think that like we're the only ones here that are awake and alive and like thinking and breathing and all of that. Yeah, I completely agree. I think not to sound too much like I'm on my soapbox, but I think, you know, if you think about things on the cosmic scale in terms of distances, time, evolution, and I don't even mean just evolution of life, I mean, evolution of the universe, it seems incredibly egocentric to think that we are the only things in this particular time to experience the universe and experience it on any conceptual cognitive level. Mm -hmm. Um, I think like, it's similar to thinking that, you know, we used to think that the earth was the center of our solar system. And when you shift that perspective and you realize that's not the case where we orbit the sun, it's, um, I think, a similar way of thinking in terms of viewing life and the probability of life. Mm -hmm. And I think that, yeah, you're absolutely right. There is a way that when you start to contemplate these cosmic facts and when you start to contemplate or just like, you know, these like cosmic mysteries of like black holes or the universe expanding or whatever it is, you start to get outside of that egocentric self and you start to get outside of like just planet earth in general. And you're just like, it would be wild to think that I had all of the answers or that I even had most of the answers, you know, like we're just like figuring out like a percentage of this in our lifetime. Exactly. Exactly. I love that because I think that what that actually does is it makes someone more open-minded in general. Totally agree. I completely agree. My, my favorite thing that I learned about astronomy, I still say it's my favorite thing. And I learned it in 11th grade and it was, we only understand, we only know 4% of everything in the universe. Everything else is dark energy and dark matter. And we don't know what that is. Mm. And that's like you're barely dipping your toe into sort of the ocean of the universe and that you have to be open-minded right like you have to have some sort of removal of your biases and subjectivities to say how can I conceptualize something where everything I know and experience and live 
is such a small, small percentage of mm. what there is. Absolutely. Last question. What's your favorite place in the universe? So I I've, <laughs> I thought about this a little bit. I think I think other than you know Earth because we can live here and we can survive. Um, the it's place a that good I, place. it's a, it's a good one. Yeah, uh, <laughs> the place that I would go to I think is Beetlejuice. So Beetlejuice is this red super giant in the constellation Orion, and we thought it could maybe explode this year because it was visibly changing its brightness. So it was super bright and then it got really, really dim. And so people everywhere were kind of like, oh my God, does that mean it's going to explode a supernova soon? It didn't, but I think it would be really, really cool to go to Beetlejuice and look at it and be able to study it up close. I, I spent all of my college years, my undergrad studying Beetlejuice, studying it again in grad school. I would love to just go there and be like, what are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) Why did you trick us? Yeah, exactly. Um, In comparison to our sun, how big is Beetlejuice? We think that it's about 20 times. Well, we think that it began as 20 times the mass of our sun. So it's going to, when when it explodes, which we don't think will happen for another 100,000 years or so, we think that it will well, it'll be visible in both the day and the nighttime sky. And it'll look sort of like this moon-like light in our sky, which is really cool. And that's when it explodes? Yes. Well, so it's when the light reaches us yes. from right. from when it explodes. Yeah. And so it's about 600, 650 light years away. So you have to scale it by then, by that much. But again, we don't think it'll happen for another 100,000 years. So what's 600? more so did we miscalculate with it and uh, this is i promise we're almost then we're really done like, I'm like last question, last <laughs> no question. i keep talking forever um <laughs> what, we, what do you mean did we miscalculate so when we thought that it was going to explode but then it didn't right. what were we actually observing or what did we where what, what what happened with that so it's very very difficult to measure and observe stars before before they explode in any meaningful way. Um, in other words, getting the last hundred years of a of observations of a star is hard because we can't accurately predict yet when stars will explode. So how do you know to start looking at it before it explodes? So we didn't actually know why it was dimming. We just thought maybe this is what stars do before they explode. Mm. And what we learned is that actually what's happening is that Betelgeuse is experiencing this sort of violent mass loss where massive stars, before they die, basically rotate really rapidly and pulsate and mass on the surface of the star gets ripped off. And Betelgeuse effectively effectively burped out part of the star. And that mass obscured our vision of the star. So if you have a light bulb and you put something in front of the light bulb, the light bulb looks dimmer because something is blocking the light. That's basically what happened with Betelgeuse. It burped out some matter and that matter is obscuring the light that is being emitted from the star. But it's now that stuff has either dissipated or moved away from the star and it looks just as bright as it normally does. Okay. Amazing. Thank you so much for that answer and for sharing space with us today. I know that there are so many people who are on my feed who come from all different parts of life. And one thing that we all share is this idea that like we play a very small part in this very big cosmic arena and that we all feel so connected to what goes on in space and what goes on in just like out there and um, having people on who know a lot about space and know a lot about astronomy uh, is really interesting and fun. And I think it's just going to really help elevate people's moods and get people thinking a little bit differently. So thank you so, so much. Where thank can everyone- you. Thank yeah. you. It's so, such an honor. Thank you so much. Where can everyone find you online? So I am on Twitter and Instagram at star stricken SF. 
star-stricken. I love it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <I> love it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's so great. Okay. Thank you once again. And I really look forward to continuing our new friendship and yes. con- <laughs> continuing to talk about all the things. Totally. Thank you so much for having me. All right, friends, you made it to the end of the episode. You know what to do now. Head over to our Instagram account, Conversations with Kenzie, and let us know what you loved about the episode. Or let us know what you didn't love. What questions did we miss? What questions could we have asked differently? Let us know there. As always, stay curious, keep asking questions, and keep making conversations in your everyday life. Until next time.